Uh, so today we're continuing our series called Thriving in Babylon. And uh, I've told you before the, the companion piece. Larry Osborne wrote uh, the book called Thriving in Babylon. It's a fantastic book. Uh, I've read through it several times. Uh, but it is available for purchase out in our lobby if you want to pick that up. Uh, we're not, I don't think we're making much of anything on that, but it's a great resource for you. If you'd rather pick it up on the e-version, on Amazon, something like that, feel free. But read through that with us. It really is an easy read, and it's, it's, a, great, it's a great way to go a little deeper with the topics and the principles that we're talking about in the course of our messages. Um, but really, the, the premise of the series is that the world we live in is a world that is hostile toward many of the beliefs that we hold dear. And this is not a message or a series that's about drawing a line in the sand and saying it's them against us, because we have plenty of that in the world we live in now. We have plenty of uh, dividing lines that say, hey, we're better and they're worse and that kind of thing. And that's not what the series is about. The series is really about how do we not only survive, but how do we thrive in a culture that's hostile toward many of the beliefs that we hold dear and many of the things that we believe are true. Um, and, and not only that, but I really believe that God's desire for us is not just to survive, but to thrive. I really believe God's heart for this world is that we will push back against the darkness and influence the culture and engage the culture in which we live so that we can see a difference in it. Uh, for too long, I feel, I feel like those of us who call ourselves Christians have been influenced by the prevailing culture, when I think what God's desire is, is for us to influence the culture of the world we live in. Uh, we see this played out in the life of Daniel. Uh, he was a young man uh, just living his life, and he was captured. Uh, the Babylonians uh, invaded uh, his homeland, which was Judah, and they took, uh, took deportees back to Babylon to indoctrinate them and assimilate them into Babylon, Babylonian culture. And we see that today, that it feels like many times the culture we live in is trying to assimilate Christians and, and godly people to the culture of the world instead of vice versa. And so really, that's what we're looking at over the course of the series is how do we thrive in this kind of culture? How do we thrive in this kind of world? Because let's be honest, the world we live in is a difficult world with uh, political differences and race differences and all the things that come up. Uh, there is so much that could divide us that I really think it's the heart of God to bring unity and reconciliation and hope to the world we live in. So how do we do that? Well, we do that by influencing the world we live in. And this is a great opportunity to silence your phone if you got one. So, <laughs> so she, she's going to get mileage out of this on the way home, so that's good. Um, let me just start at the beginning. A couple weeks ago, in week one, we started the series. <clears throat> and in week one, uh, we basically laid the foundation for the whole series. And the idea that we had to get through our minds at that time is that God is in control of who is in control. So it doesn't matter who's been elected, it doesn't matter who the king is, it doesn't matter who your boss is, God is in control of who's in control. Because kings will come and go, presidents will come and go, bosses will come and go, but God is forever. And so we, when we, we can take comfort in the fact that God is ultimately sovereign over leadership and authority and uh, governments, uh, but he's also sovereign over nature and over the world. So we can trust deeply in the fact that God is good and he's in control. Uh, week two, we talked about tests. Unfortunately, we all deal with tests. Tests come our way. And the only way we can pass the test, if you can say it like that, is to live out an authentic faith. Authentic faith may fall, but it'll always get back up. Uh, a counterfeit faith looks good and it looks the part, but it will not stand up against the test. Um, so we walked through that during week two. Uh, last week, we began talking about characteristics of people who thrive 
in Babylon. And so we talked about hope last week, that hope isn't just some wish, it's not some flight of fancy, but hope in God is knowing who he is and knowing what he'll do. So as sure as we are that two plus two equals four, that's how sure we are about the hope we have in God, that we can trust him. See, hope and faith uh, are closely aligned, and sometimes, um, sometimes we don't understand that. And so the hope we have in God is not a wish, it is, it is deep-seated. And we talked about Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 4, that said suffering builds endurance, and bu- endurance builds character, and character builds hope. We all want hope, but none of us want the process. We don't want the suffering. Uh, but that's really where hope begins in our lives when we submit it to Christ. So last week we talked about hope, and this week we're going to talk about a topic that I think probably everyone in the room was looking forward to hearing about today. We're going to talk about humility. Um, there's probably not anybody here that, that woke up thinking, I hope Mel preaches about humility, because I need to hear more about that. Really, most of us are like, I need to hear more about hope, I need to hear more about grace, I need to hear more about my future, you know, those kind of things. But humility is so important to our ability to thrive in a, in a hostile culture. See, Daniel had hope, he had biblical hope that allowed him to have courage in, in spite of his opposition, but it was his his, his, his let me back up. It was his humility that gave him favor with the Babylonians. If he didn't have humility, he couldn't have gained influence with the Babylonians to help change the culture. And that's really what is so important for us to see, is that in order for us to see a shift in the culture we live in today, it's going to require humility. Um, before we talk about what biblical humility is, let me hit a couple things that it is not. Um, biblical humility is not low self-esteem. Um, sometimes we feel like if we're just down in the mouth and we trash ourselves and we, we talk about how horrible we are and how bad we are, that that's humility. And that's not necessarily what biblical humility is. In fact, you see several t- examples in Scripture where people clearly did not lack self-esteem, but they, uh, but they still had humility. Even Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1, see Daniel wrote the book of Daniel not as a diary entry, but as a retrospective. So uh, later in his life, he went back and wrote the story that we know as Daniel today. Um, and so he didn't write it as he was going along. So he went back and told us the story. So Daniel is the writer, and listen to the way he describes the deportees from, Ju- from Judah in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, if I stood up here and I was like, hey guys, let me, let me tell you about myself. I'm really handsome, almost like a Cary Grant kind of handsome. Uh, I'm an excellent singer, I'm an excellent dancer, and clearly I'm an excellent dresser. Uh, you'd be like, God, this guy's kind of full of himself, right? Now, this is not the exact same thing, but that's basically what Daniel was doing. Daniel was saying, hey, let me tell you what happened. Uh, the, the Babylonians came in, and they took the best and the brightest. They took the people who were smart and, and, and good-looking and, um, and had good personal skills and you know, were skilled in different ways and came from nobility. And he's describing these people. And he, he had every opportunity to say, but that wasn't me. I just got lucky that I got to go along with them. But he, he's not. See, he doesn't lack self-esteem. Biblical humility is not lacking self-esteem. It's something very different. I think Daniel was totally confident in, in who he was. Um, we, we see so low self-esteem is not biblical humility. Lack of ambition is not biblical humility. See, somebody, sometimes we see people that have ambition, and we automatically go, oh, well, they can't be humble because they have ambition. They want to do big things. Wow. 
That's kind of bold to them, right? And sometimes it might be a God-given dream or vision. And we go, man, they're kind of full of themselves. But just because somebody has ambition doesn't mean they're arrogant. And just because somebody lacks ambition doesn't mean they're humble. See, people throughout Scripture had high ambitions. They wanted to do great things. Uh, And we see this over and over. Um, When you look at in Daniel chapter 2, last week I told you the story from Daniel 2 where um, the king Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and nobody could interpret it. And so they called on Daniel and Daniel showed up and he interpreted the dream. And so not only did he interpret the dream, he told, he told Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was, and then he interpreted it for him. That's a big step, right? And so when they finished, Nebuchadnezzar said, man, whatever you ask is yours. And Daniel could have said, oh, king, it's just an honor to serve. It's your pleasure, right? Oh, I don't need anything. That's so nice. But Daniel was a guy who had some ambition, and he had some friends. Remember we talked about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he said, hey, you know what, king? I got some friends, and they're sharp. They're intelligent. They're great guys. And you know what? You need to put them in charge of the province of Babylon. So the province that surrounded the capital city, he said, you need to put them in control over that. And the king said, okay, you got it. That does not sound like a man who lacked ambition. But yet Daniel could walk out biblical humility in his life every single day. He understood what it was to have ambition because he had ambitious dreams for the glory of God. He wanted to influence Babylonian culture. He wanted to infiltrate and influence the culture around him so that he could bring glory to God. And we see, we see that I don't think God's afraid of that. I don't think God is afraid of us having big, bold, ambitious dreams. I don't think that bothers him one bit. Uh, in fact, you see in Matthew chapter 20, uh, Jesus was with the disciples and uh, it says that the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So it's talking about James and John, two of Jesus' 12 disciples. The mom, she approaches Jesus and she said, hey Jesus, I got a favor to ask. And this always makes me a little nervous whenever uh, parents of adult people get involved in their lives a little bit. Does that make sense? Um, I'll give you an example, personal example. Um, I love my mom and dad very, very much. And they're probably watching right now. And mom and dad, if you're watching right now, I love you very much. So mom, don't be offended by this story. Um, so last weekend, my parents think that the only reason we have live stream here at the summit is so that they can watch from Oklahoma every week, uh, which is not true by the way. Uh, but they watch every weekend live stream from Oklahoma. And so, um, last weekend in the 11 o'clock worship experience, the, the service dropped and it was not our problem. It was a problem with our, the people who provided anyway. So I was on my way home from church that day and I called my parents and we were talking and my mom said, hey, did you know the live stream dropped? And I said, yeah, I did. I, I knew that. And she said, hey, you know, we watch all the time. Maybe it would be a good idea if you just give me the number for your tech director. That way I can contact them directly. <laughs> no, I don't think so. It's probably not a good idea, you know. I don't want my mom getting involved, and it's just a bad idea. So sometimes when parents get involved with their adult kids' lives, they've got really good intentions. And I think James and John's mom had really good intentions. She, she says, Jesus, I'm going to ask you a favor. And, and her intention was good, but she probably shouldn't have been meddling. And so she says, hey, I've got a favor to ask you. And he said, what do you want? And he, she said, how about in your kingdom, if James sits on one side of you at the throne and John can sit on the other. How does that sound? That's a, 
That's an ambitious ask, isn't it? That's a big deal she's asking about. And she didn't even realize how ambitious it really was. But it's interesting because Jesus doesn't say, woman, who do you think you are? Right? He doesn't slap her and go, get thee behind me, devil. He doesn't do any of that. He never rebukes her ambition. Never. But what he does is he brings some correction because she has no idea what she's really asking. So in verse 22 of Matthew 20, it says, Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And then the boys, the, the boys answered and they said, we are able. And again, they had no idea. And he goes on to say, um, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and in my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. So what he's saying is, maybe you'll get to sit there, but it's not up to me, it's up to God. It's up to my Father. But he's saying, in order to, to sit in that seat, you're going to have to drink a cup that I don't think you're willing to drink. You're going to have to pay a price I don't know that you're willing to pay to do what you're saying you want to do. He didn't rebuke them for their ambition. He didn't rebuke them because he said, you shouldn't be asking for things like that. But what he did is he said, are you, are you even sure you know what you're asking for? Because you might get it, but it's going to cost you. And sometimes we th say things like, God, use me in whatever way you want. And I think God goes, okay, but do you know what you're asking? Because it might cost you. You might have to pay a price that you're not quite willing to pay to sit in that seat and to have that authority. And to ha so he's not rebuking our ambition. He wants us to have ambition. He wants us to have dreams. He wants us to have goals. But we have to understand that with every ambition that's for the glory of God, it comes with a price. And we might not be willing to pay the price that that ambition is going to cost us. The last thing that biblical humility is not is um, downplaying your accomplishments. See, it's funny. There doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground when it comes to this. People either downplay their accomplishments or they blow their accomplishments out of the water, don't they? So we all know guys that we've talked to, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I could have played in the NFL. I mean, I'd probably be starting for the Steelers today if it wasn't for my coach in high school. That guy hates me. No, you couldn't be. No, you couldn't be starting. We went to this little Bible college, my wife and I did. Um, uh, I mean, gosh, 1,400 students probably when we were there, something like that. Not big. They started a football program while we were there. So, like, literally a, me and my buddies from the school could have probably beaten the team that they put on the field. It was terrible. They were horrible. And there was this one guy on the football team. Um, man, he was cocky. And, he, and again, we're, it's like not even, it's like NAIA Division 12. It's not even like anything anyway. And uh, he was like, oh, yeah, you know, I got recruited by Texas A&M and University of Oklahoma. And I'm like, well, why didn't you go to that school? Was, instead, he was like, oh, it's just because, uh, you know, my shoulder was bothering me. I didn't throw well that day. And they offered me, but I just didn't want to go. And I'm like, I don't think so, right? Like that just doesn't line up. And we all know people like that. They've taken some moment from their life and they've blown it out of proportion and they made themselves sound better than they really were. And we know those people. But then we also know people on the other end of the spectrum too that, that, man, they've done some incredible things. They've been part of some incredible things. But they downplay all their accomplishments because they think that is biblical humility. I don't think any of us would argue that Jesus had biblical humility, right? He was humble. We're going to read a scripture in just a moment that says, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, right? So Jesus knew what humility was all about. But do you know what Jesus said publicly? That he was the son of God. 
Can you believe the nerve of that guy? So what, he didn't downplay who he was. He, he didn't do that because he felt like that's what you had to do. He was honest about who he was, and he was honest about what God was going to use him for. See, biblical humility is not about downplaying our accomplishments. Um, it, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, let me read this to you. It says, For the, by, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what it means is we can't look at ourselves through our ideal picture. Who do I wish I was? Who do I wish I could have been? And that's who I could have been. I could have played in the NFL. Um, we were watching the game last week, and James Harrison was on the field. And that guy's a, he's a beast. It's amazing. Like He's 38 years old, and I don't know if we stood James Harrison next to me. I don't know if you noticed. There'd be some physical differences between us. Did you know that? I mean, not much, but... It might be hard to tell, uh, but uh, I think Steph or one of the people that were at the game watching the game with us said, hey, can, Kim, can you imagine if Mel was in the NFL? And Kim could hardly even speak. She was like, <laughs> right? But every guy has a little bit of ego in us that we think, well, maybe I could have played in the pros. Maybe I could have played in the major league. Maybe I could have, right? And what the Bible says is, no, 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 don't think about yourself that way. Think about yourself with sober judgment. Think about yourself the way God thinks of you. Because yes, God looks at you like his child, and he imagines the best for you, but, come on. I couldn't have played in the NFL, or in the major leagues, or any of those things. But what God has in store for me is so much better than those things, it's ridiculous. So why would I get hung up on puffing myself up about something that really doesn't even matter? So look at yourself with sober judgment. So what is biblical humility really all about? What is it? And I can tell you it's two words. Serving others. That's what biblical humility is. That's how Daniel could thrive in Babylon is because he humbled himself and was able, able to serve others. See, it's impossible to serve others if we don't humble ourselves. I mean, we might serve them, but we're not really serving them if we don't humble ourselves before the Lord. This is what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'm going to start in verse 5. It says this. It says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. So first, he addresses the younger men, and then he opens it up to the whole church. And he says, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Now, um, the word that's used several times as humble in this passage, it's taken from the Greek, and the Greek word is tapenao, uh, and it means to bring low. And we all understand that humbling ourselves means that we lower ourselves. And basically what it's saying is when we lower ourselves, God is able to exalt us. Most of us spend so much time trying to exalt ourselves, and God is trying to get us to spend all of our time humbling ourselves. So we work and we work and we work and we try to make ourselves look perfect. And on social media, we want our lives to look perfect. And all these things need to be perfect. And I need to impress these people. And I need to make sure these people think the right thing of me. And I need to get ahead. And I need to, all these things. And God goes, no, 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 no. Do this. Instead of exalting yourself, you humble yourself. If you'll humble yourself, I'll exalt you when I'm ready. And when, more importantly, when you're ready. We work so hard to exalt ourselves. And God says, no, 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 shift your focus, shift your energy, just humble yourself. And that word humble that we see there means to lower. 
We just lower ourselves a little bit. In fact, if you take it a little bit further, what it means is that we're unassuming or that we level the playing field. So it doesn't just mean that we lower ourselves, but it also means that we honor others. So what basically happens is um, in our lives, it's easy for us to judge other people. It's easy to judge people by what they drive or what they wear, what they look like, um, what, what job they have, all those kind of things. It's easy to judge people. Um, if you've got kids that play sports and, oh, we, well, my kid's team performed better than that kid's team, or my child is a better athlete than their child, or we stack ourselves up and measure ourselves all the time. And so what happens is there's this disparity between ourselves and others. We make ourselves feel better and... It's at the disadvantage of others. Does that make sense? We judge them, and we make ourselves feel better. And what this verse is really saying is, when we humble ourselves, what we do is we level the playing field. So we lower ourselves. But if we're going to be honest, even if we lowered ourselves, most of us would still view ourselves as better than a lot of other people. So what this passage says to us is, we lower ourselves, we humble ourselves, and we honor those around us. And that's not easy to do, is it? I mean, it's easy if they love us and they're good to us and they're nice to us and all those kind of things. It's hard, though, if, if they're not good to us or they don't treat us well or maybe they disagree with us. It's not always easy. But that's what this passage is calling for. We humble ourselves. We honor others. And when we do that, God can exalt us. If you, I'm doing this verse backwards, by the way. I didn't intend to do it that way. It's just how it ends up happening. So we start at the bottom. And let's work our way up. The line right before that says, For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Um, I've talked before. I've got this dog at our house, and it's not really my dog. I think the dog owns me more than I own the dog. Does anybody understand that? She's got me trained now. But this dog is little and white and fluffy, and um, she's part Maltishan part Bichon Frise and part demon. I don't know what, how it's split exactly. If it's like a third and a third and a third, I'm not sure. But black eyes, just lifeless black eyes like a shark. And uh, anyway, so this dog, uh, it's my responsibility. I don't know how I drew the short straw. It's my responsibility in our house to, to wash the dog, to give the dog a bath when it needs it. And I hate washing the dog. It's just, I hate it. And so I've neglected my responsibility lately. And so what has happened is the dog, I don't know if you know this, animals that aren't bathed start to stink over time. Did anybody know that? Like, I just found this out. I wasn't aware. So, um, so I haven't washed the dog in a little bit. And man, this dog was stinking. And the dog is a lap dog. And so in order to control your soul, it has to be in your lap, I guess. I don't know if that's what, it, like, mind control of some sort. So the dog would try to get in your lap. And you go, no, 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 Lulu, get away. Lulu. Lulu, you stink, Lulu. And every person in our family has said those words to the dog. You stink, Lulu, get away from me. Um, there was one night this last week that uh, Kim was away, and, um, and Lulu was in the bed with me sleeping that night. And I, in my dream, I could smell the dog. And when I opened my eyes, she was laying next to me. And it was like, okay, yeah, Lulu, you smell. I'm having bad dreams about how bad you smell, right? So, so this is the thing we have to understand. Um, when this verse says here, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What it's saying is that God's just not ambivalent toward us when we're proud. What it's saying is he is actively opposed to us. He is in opposition to us when we have a spirit of pride. And so it's the equivalent of, of us approaching God and going, hey God, here I am. I signed up, to, I signed up for, the, for the worship team. I signed up to serve. I'm on your team. You're welcome right? And God goes, yeah, get, it, 
get away from me, you stink. You, you, got, you got the stink of pride on you, and I, yeah, I can't be by you right now. Here, you need to move away from me right now, because I can't do anything with you. That's what God does when we have a spirit of pride in our lives. He opposes us. He pushes us away. And this is one of the only times you see this in Scripture, that God opposes us. But a spirit of pride will cause that to happen. But the reverse is true, too. He gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves, he gives grace to us. The verse right before this, he gives instruction to the whole church. And all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And this word clothe, um, some people value clothes more than other. We all get dressed in the morning, right? It's important. You don't walk into work in your jammies. And if you do, you probably won't keep your job very long. Uh, you, don't, you get dressed before you go to work every day, right? Uh, so you go in and you get dressed and then you leave for the day. And every one of us do this as part of our routine. And what, P, what we see here that Peter is saying to the church is just as normal as that routine is, part of your routine needs to be that you clothe yourself with humility. That every day you clothe yourself with the spirit of humility. That's just how you live your life, with that same kind of spirit. But it's interesting, when you look at the word uh, humility, or the clothe here, the, the Greek word for clothe is inkombomai. And the word inkombomai means to knot or band two things together. So what it's really talking about is... Um, in the Old Testament, they would wear the, their outfits, and you've seen them before. They look like a bathrobe, kind of, and it was long, and it would flow. Um, but what it, they would do is, is they would bind it together. So you may have heard, uh, heard the phrase, gird your loins, in Scripture. And what they would do is they would tie it up. They would bring it up, and they would tie it all up so that they could be active, so that they could work, or so that they could fight if they needed to. And what this verse is really saying is, is that we need to clothe ourselves in humility, but it's saying to bind it up in such a way that we're ready for action, that we're ready to do something, that our humility should lead to action in our lives, that humility just can't be a spirit of humility where we just go, okay, I'm humble now, but it has to lead to something, and the something that it leads to is serving. That's what humility does. Humility serves others. That's what biblical humility is really all about. And if you take this just a step further, it's interesting because um, there's this connotation to this word and that I think Peter was trying to, to convey is that there was this white apron that was commonly worn in this day and age by slaves or by servants. And this white apron would be attached to the belt uh, uh, that they would wear. And it was a sign that they were slaves. So it was an outward sign of who they really were. Uh, so it separated free men from slaves or servants. So what would happen is they would put that on and then people would look at you and know who you were just by looking at you. And what Peter is trying to help the church see is it's not enough to have a, a heart thing happen. It's got to come out of us. See, we have to say, uh, I don't care what the world has to say about me. I don't care where I fall in a social class. I'm here to be a servant. But too many times we don't want people to think we're a servant. We want people to think we're the boss or in control. So we don't want to put on this white apron. We don't want people to think less of us. But the truth is, serving is one of the most magnificent things we can do. It's one of the highest callings any of us can have. And it's the very thing that Christ called us to do. See, so many of us are busy clothing ourselves in such a way that we get all the honor. We clothe ourselves in such a way with our reputation and the way that people think about us. And we carefully craft the view that people have of us. And we do it in such a way that we'll be honored. But what we need to do is clothe ourselves in such a way that God gets all the honor. 
that God gets all the glory. And the way we do that is by putting on that white apron every single day. It's by saying, you know what, today I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve others. There's a pastor of a great church down in Oklahoma City. His name's Craig Grishel. He pastors the largest church in the United States. He says this, how can you tell if you have the heart of a servant? And then he answers the question and says, by the way you react when you're treated like one. See, we all think we're pretty humble until somebody treats us at a lower level than we think we deserve. And then we get fired up. Well, I can't believe they'd act like that. Can, do they even know who I am? Do they, even, do they even know my role in this company? I can't believe they would treat me like that. Do you know what that's a revelation of? It's a revelation that our, heart, our hearts aren't as humble as we think they are. Remember we talked a few weeks ago that tests um, aren't meant to crush us, they're meant to reveal something about us. And that's what happens, it reveals something that's going on in our heart. In Matthew chapter 20, we talked just a minute ago about James and John's mom who said, hey, my boys want the good seats next to you, right? Jesus told her that what he said, and we talked about it a minute ago. Let me continue on with that passage. In verse 24 of Matthew chapter 20, it says, And when the ten heard it, so the rest of the disciples heard what was going on, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So what he says is, in the culture we live in, if you're the boss, you rule with an iron fist. You make sure people know you're the boss. That's how Gentiles do it. And then he shifts it, and he says this, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus said, hey, in the world we live in, if you want to get ahead, you're going to have to step on some people, right? You have to, might have to elbow your way up the ladder of success, but he said, that's not the way it works in God's economy and in his kingdom, in his culture. That's not how it works. The way it works is if you want to lead, you've got to serve. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. And there is no halfway point. There is no way to, uh, to, to water that down. That is the only way it can work. In fact, Jesus said, this isn't just your rule. It's good for me too. He said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The God of the universe came incarnate in human form, and he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. So how much more should we be willing to serve? How much more should we be willing to roll up our sleeves and get involved? See, uh, I mentioned Peter Haas a little bit ago. Uh, Peter spoke in our January 2nd Wednesday. He wrote in one of his books, uh, he said this, and I've read it to you before, but it's bears repeating. He said, if you don't like, or if, if you don't feel like you're being fed, maybe it's time to take off your bib and put on an apron. What he's saying is so many people approach church like it's all about them. I want to get what I want. I'm, I want to get fed. I need Pastor Mel. I need him to be funny, but I need him to be deep too. I don't want him to go too long, but I don't want him to go too short. Um, if it's not perfect, then I might have to find another church to go to. Todd didn't sing the song I like. And he didn't sing it the way I like. He didn't sing it as fast. He didn't sing it as slow. Uh, there's too much drum. There's not enough drum. Whatever the case is, it's all about us. It's all about what we want and our opinion, our, our preferences. What we have to understand is it's not about us. See, a servant, it's not about them. Have you ever been to a restaurant and you're like, hey, can I get some more water? And the, servant, uh, the, the server's like, no, but I need some more. Would you get me some? 
No, hey, I, I need a bite of your steak. And they just start cutting some. And you're like, what? I was hungry. I'm sorry, right? It'd be ridiculous. They're there for you. And this is the same approach as Christians we have to take to the world we live in today. It's not about us. It's not about our preference. It's not about our desire. It is about us saying, God, how can you use me to bless those around me? I said this in the last service, but it's funny. Um, you know, we've got this building going up in the back for kids and youth, and it's fantastic, and it's wonderful. I'm excited, and it's going to do all kinds of things, enable us to reach more families, and I'm excited about all that. But nobody that walks through that building that we're constructing will walk through and go, man, the hammers it took to make this place, it's fantastic. I want to see the hammer that built this. No. Do you know what they do? Who's your builder? Who are the people that are at work on this? Who are your subs? Why? Because they want to know who the craftsmen were. They don't care what the tool was. And can I tell you something? We're hammers. We think we're the craftsmen. We're not. We are the hammers in the hand of the master craftsman. God wants to use you, but you're not going to get any of the glory. It's going to be him. He's going to get all the glory. But God can't do that if we don't have a servant's heart. And that's what he's calling us to. See, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. In John chapter 13, he gathered his disciples up, and he washed their feet. He took a basin of water, began washing nasty, crusty feet. This was a job that was for slaves and servants and menial laborers. And it wasn't for the leader. It wasn't for the teacher or the rabbi. But Jesus was setting an example. He would wash every one of their feet. He even washed Peter's feet. And Peter denied him three times on the night he died. He even washes Judas's feet. Judas betrayed him. He sold him out for some cash. He knew that was going to happen, and he washed their feet anyway. See, Jesus is setting an example for us. He's helping us see we have to have a servant's heart in order to influence the world we live in. We have to humble ourselves in order to influence the world we live in. And we might have to serve some people who are going to betray us, who are out to get us, who are hostile toward us in order to influence them well. Jesus sets the example for us. He tells us what we need to do. He points us in the right direction. And we see this is what happened in, in Daniel's life as well. He served under six different kings. And every king he had a level of influence because he was willing to serve with humility. See, what we do many times is we attack. If somebody disagrees with us, we attack. If somebody doesn't think like we do, we attack. And we see this, don't we, in the world we live in today? Gosh, with politics and race, and all the different things that bring division to our world, and, and the tendencies to attack or to avoid. And this is not what God has called us to do at all. God is calling us as a church and us as individuals to engage the culture we live in so that we can influence the culture we live in. He's not calling us to shout louder than the opposition. He's not telling us to shout louder or to scream over the noise of the culture of this world. What he's telling us to do is to engage this world in a conversation, in a loving conversation with humility so that we can serve those around us well. We see this over and over and over in Daniel's life. Mahatma Gandhi said this. He said, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. One of the reasons we are gaining influence in our community as a church, it's not because of our church size. It's not because uh, we're building a building. It's not because of our worship. It's not because of our preaching. The reason we are gaining influence in our community is because we serve well. Um, 
We don't talk a whole lot about all the things we do, but we do a lot of things in our community. Um, we serve the teachers at a couple of local schools really well this year. We just went in and said, hey, can, can we give them breakfast? Hey, can we give them some supplies? Hey, can we give them some, just some prizes just to say thank you? No strings attached. We're not asking to, uh, to you know, uh, preach. We're not asking to proselytize. We just want to stand up and say thank you for what you do. And when they opened that door, we were able to go in and, and just bless them and love them and encourage them. And what we did is we gained influence with them. We never preached. We never said the word Jesus to them. All we did was love them well. We're gaining influence. We've talked about this before. IUP's homecoming rolls around, and there literally there are people that will attack or avoid. They will get away for the weekend, or they'll just gripe all weekend long. Oh, here it is again. You know what we did this year? We went down and served the police officers who were, um, who were guarding and protecting our students in our community. We went down there and served them dinner and lunch and took care of them. And there's a group of people from our church that just went and loved on them. They never preached. They never said a word, but their actions preached. Because what they did was opened up opportunity and opened up opportunities for influence. Um, one of my favorite things we did this last year was a thing called Starlet Night, and I loved it. We're going to do it again this next year. It's going to be at the KCAC. It's going to be even bigger, even better. It's going to be incredible. But what it is, is a, it's a prom for adults, with, uh, for, for people with, um, with disabilities of any kind. And so we throw this prom, and they will come in, and they'll be dressed in their best. Some of them in tuxes and dressed in formal gowns, and they can dance, and they can um, run around and, and eat and take pictures and do all these things. And when they come in, we cheer for them. And what we do is we, as a church, humble ourselves, and we honor those around us. And it's amazing to see the life of God just shine out of them. We don't preach a word to them, but they experience God that night. And that's what humility does when we serve others. It's amazing to see what happens. See, some of you are here today, and you're in a job uh, that you can't stand your boss. And you think maybe your boss is the Antichrist. He might be. I don't know. Maybe. But this is what I know. The Bible makes it very clear if we'll choose to humble ourselves humble ourselves under authority, even if we don't like the authority, if we will humble ourselves and serve, things will change. It might not be that person. That person may not change. Your circumstances may not change, but I can promise you, you will change. Your heart is going to begin to be shaped into the image that God has for it. He wants you to look more like him. Some of you are in a marriage that the marriage is tough. It's difficult. And you're here and you go, man, if, if God could just change my spouse, my marriage would be fine. But you know what? You can't control your spouse. You've tried. It doesn't work. But you know what God wants you to do? Humble yourself. And begin to serve your spouse and see what will happen. God might not change your spouse's heart. God might not change the circumstance, but I can promise you God will change your heart if you just humble yourself, begin to serve. In the world we live in, there are people that are thrilled about our president. There are people that are mortified because of our president. Presidents will come and go. God is in control of who's in control. But do you know what? What if we just humble ourselves and the people that are opposed to us politically, we just begin to love them. We, we honor them. We humble ourselves and begin to serve. God can do amazing things.
God can do amazing things when we serve, but we have to be willing to humble ourselves so that he can use us. Remember, we're the hammer. He's the craftsman. He wants to use us. Let me read one more passage and we're done. Philippians 2.8 says this, and being, it's talking about Jesus. It says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what did Jesus do? He humbled himself. He humbled himself to become human. Then he humbled himself even further to the point of death on the cross. And it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. So what happened? He humbled himself, and that principle is true. God exalted him. He, God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is what we have to see. Jesus humbles himself, Jesus is exalted, and then someday, no matter who you are, every person in this place, whether you're a Christian or an unbeliever, whether you are an atheist or an agnostic, whatever it might be, someday every one of us will confess Jesus as Lord. Someday every one of us will be humbled before him. Now, that does not mean that all of us are in a relationship with him or all of us will get to heaven. What it means, though, is that someday every, <laughs> every demon, Every devil, every person will all declare that Jesus is Lord. See, we have a choice, though. We can either humble ourselves or we can be humbled. We can choose to humble ourselves today and say, okay, Jesus, you are Lord. I choose to kneel before you today. I choose to make you Lord today. Or someday we're going to see it face to face. And by then it'll be too late. See, some of you are in those marriages that we talked about. And you have a choice to make. You can either wait, and ultimately it's going to be humbling in one way or the other, or you can choose to humble yourself today and say, I choose to serve. I choose to serve my spouse. I choose to humble myself and honor them. In your workplace, wherever it might be, you have a choice to make today. You can either humble yourself, or at some point you will be humbled. Don't wait. Humble yourself today. Choose to serve Choose to bless those around you and see what God will do. See how he allows you to influence the culture in your family, in your community, in your world. Let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful that um, you sent your son for us, that he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, that because of that, we have life today. We can know him today, that we can walk in abundance in this world, but God, we can live with eternal life someday with you. So God, I pray today none of us would delay. None of us would wait. God, let us all humble ourselves today before you. God, I pray for marriages in this place that need restoration. God, I pray that one or both parties in that marriage would begin humbling themselves before the other, begin serving the needs of the other. God, I pray for people who are in difficult work positions today. God, I pray that you give them a heart to begin to serve difficult bosses that even maybe are hostile against them, God. And I pray that you change them, God. Change their hearts. Lord, I pray today that you would minister in every situation here, God, every situation that's represented. Let us just experience you today. Let us see you at work. Have your way among us today. Now, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to ask, if you're here today and you say to me, Mel, you know what? I've never humbled myself before Jesus. I've never made him Lord of my life, but I recognize today I need to. I recognize today I'm not right. I recognize today I need to change my world, but I can't because I can't even change myself. And I need Jesus' help. I need to humble myself before him and make him Lord of my life. 
I'm not going to embarrass you or make you come forward. I want to pray with you right where you're at, though. So if you're here today, you say, Mel, that's me. Pray for me. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. Would you be bold enough just to raise your hand real high where I can see it? And I'll acknowledge it, and you can put your hand right back down. Thanks. Up in the balcony. I see you. Thank you. Back by the sound booth. Thank you, ma'am. I see you. Thanks, sir, in the center section. I see you. Thank you, sir. Over here on my right. Praise God. Who else? Thanks. Up in the balcony. I see three hands up there. Praise God. Thank you, ma'am. I see another one up there. You can put your hand down. Praise the Lord. Thank you over here on my left. Awesome. Awesome. Just a few more seconds. Anybody else? Okay. I'd like every person in this place, whether you raised your hand or not, just to pray this really simple prayer after me. Repeat this prayer after me out loud. Say this with me. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. And thank you for saving me by paying the price for my sins on the cross. Today, I choose to humble myself before you. And I'm asking you to use my life to influence the culture and to change the world. Use me for your glory. I submit myself to be a hammer and a tool in your hand to be used however you want. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today. Now listen.